Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. We all know the importance of birth and death. Birth is essential for the continuation of our species, and many people are afraid of death for many different reasons. In a way, though, birth and death give life its significance because life is so short. What most people don't seem to realize, though, is the extent to which the beginning and end of our lives have been medicalized. Today, on February 9th, 2022, I'm excited to speak to Lauren K. Hall, a professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. In 2019, she wrote a book called The Medicalization of Life and Death, where she shows that because of a variety of factors unrelated to the welfare of the individuals involved, whether moms or babies, a dying person or their family, these incredibly personal events have now been reduced to a one-size-fits-all experience. I'm really looking forward to talking about this. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thanks for being here. Or thank you for having so, me. <laughs> so before we get into it, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Um, you know, I that's a it's a tough one. I think my answer is really sort of for every young generation. So it's not necessarily something that's specific to your generation per se, but I think it's sort of something that comes from youth. And I think there's sort of a just a um I, I think a lot of people when they're young look for really simple explanations. And so there's a kind of throwing up their hands at like, this seems so easy. Why are these, you know, oldsters screwing this up so badly? And, and then I think as you get more information and also just more experience in the world, you realize that things are just a lot more complex. And I know that this is the case for the book, but I think it's generally true that people look for really easy explanations. And so you have people who say the problem is capitalism or the problem is the patriarchy or the problem is whatever. And, and in reality, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. So I think, um, I think there's just less appreciation for complexity and nuance in younger generations. And that doesn't mean that we're not still screwing things up like the old the older population. Um, but I, I wish that there was a little bit more respect for complexity. Yeah, I get that. I, I, all the complaints I hear, it's this overarching theme. It's like, oh, there's this problem. And yeah, that is a problem. And that's kind of what feeds the fire. But then the fire dies out because once it gets a little bit more complicated than, oh, this is the one big thing we're fighting against the entire operation falls apart. And so I think it causes a lot of problem. It, it, it becomes its own obstacle in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your book. Um, yeah. Because of time, I propose we talk about the birth aspect mostly, and hopefully we'll be able to do something again to talk about the medicalization of death. But the two are very similar. Mm -hmm. They're around Four million women who give birth in the United States almost every year, and most of them are in hospitals. As you explained, this wasn't always the case. So how far back do we have to go to find a majority of births taking place at a home or outside of a hospital? 
So you can go back to the the turn of the um, of the sort of previous century. So in the 1900s, and a lot of this is regional. Um, it varies between urban and rural populations. It varies between north and south. Um, but in the 1900s, most women were were giving birth outside of hospitals, and then that changes really dramatically. the The pace of hospitalization picks up really dramatically in the 30s and 40s. Uh, it starts earlier, but it really sort of uh, keys up in the thirties and forties. Um, and, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about some of the things that contribute to that. Of course, you have better hospitals, better medical techniques, um, pain medication becomes a really important part of that story. Uh, but one of the things I look at in the book is, is the, the sort of political and regulatory changes that go along with that. So there's a, it's a, it's a complex story. There's a lot of moving parts, but, but that's the real shift that we start seeing again, in the 1930s, 1940s. And non-medicalized birth, births that aren't in a hospital or in a medical setting, doesn't mean that you're giving birth on your own. What did that look like before the U.S. started trending towards medicalization? Yeah. So traditionally, um, you know, women have always given birth with other people. And usually those women would be um, neighbors, friends um, and midwives. And midwives have, um, you know... It's a really heterogeneous group of, of people. So some midwives um, who would attend births would have years and years, decades of practice and apprenticeship, and they would learn a variety of important techniques. Um, and in fact, there's actually some, um, Ina Mae Gaskin, who's one of the um, sort of founding members of, of white midwifery or the reinvention of sort of midwifery in the United States. She actually learned a lot of her techniques from um, from indigenous midwives in South America. And so, um, and, and actually, you know, obstetricians still use some of those techniques today to help, um, to help get babies unstuck, for example. So the idea that sort of apprenticeship based models don't have anything important to tell us, I think is really clearly incorrect. Um, but so some of these midwives have an enormous amount of experience, enormous amount of, um, of uh, sort of knowledge that they bring to the table. Um, other midwives are just like sort of your next door neighbor comes over and helps you and holds your hand. So it, it really did vary based on what, what women had access to. Um, and I'll just, I'll just say very quickly that you can have a non-medicalized birth in a hospital. Um, I had three hospital births and they were generally non-medicalized. Um, but it's, very, very hard to do. And so that's one of the narratives in my book is that you have to fight for demedicalization in the hospital context, whereas it's, it's the standard of care outside of the, outside of the hospital. So in the home or in birth centers. So what does it look like to have a non-medicalized birth in a hospital? Um, so typically, I mean, what I did is I worked with, um, I was very, very lucky that I had, um, providers who are really supportive of my goals. Um, you know, and as background, I'm a low risk mother. Um, when I had my first child when I was 31, uh, no other risk factors, singleton pregnancy. So it was really easy for me to say, Hey, I, I really don't think I need every bell and whistle here. Um, I would like limited monitoring. I would like to be able to move around the room. And, um, the, the woman who I gave birth with, um, she was actually a former midwife who became a doctor. And so she actually had, she was unique in that she had both of these, uh, she had her sort of feet in both worlds, so to speak. Um, but she was really honest with me. She said, there are going to be things that the hospital is going to make us do just for liability reasons. And I found that extraordinarily frustrating. Um, so when I first went to the hospital, you have to go through this triage 
piece where you're um, essentially laying on your back while they listen to the baby for about 20 minutes uh, just to make sure everything's okay. Um, it's excruciatingly painful to lay on your back <laughs> during labor <laughs> um, without uh, without other pain relief. And that's, of course, before you get to the point that you can have pain relief if you choose. Um, and, so, and, and it's not clear, there's no evidence that that's necessary. And there's no evidence that that really improves outcomes. Uh, it just becomes sort of an alienating experience for a lot of women. So there's other stuff like, you know, they, they want to insert um, HEPLOCs or IV ports uh, so that they can easily intervene in case of an emergency. Again, there's no evidence that that's supported. Um, different hospitals will want to monitor the baby at various intervals, which can reduce women's ability to move around. And we know that movement during labor really helps with pain um, and it helps with movement. Um, and it helps with, um, uh, helps the baby move down the birth canal. So there's just a lot of different pieces to this that I think you, you have to resist and you have to actively resist in a hospital environment. Whereas if I had been outside of the hospital, the, uh, those things never would have happened in the first place. But again, I, I had wonderful providers and then I had midwives for my last two births and, um, very little intervention, very little, uh, monitoring, but we were still with we were still hemmed in in ways that that my providers and I talked about. We had to be really clear about what my goals were. Um, in one case, I had to get a letter of permission saying that my doctor said it was okay for me to not get a HEPLOC. So there, there's a kind of authoritarian um, uh, vibe when you when you go into a hospital, and that's just not there. It's much more egalitarian outside the hospital. So that would be one sort of primary difference, but it's possible to do a non-medicalized birth in a hospital. It's just very, very hard. What other alternatives exist to kind of... So, yeah, um, the two primary alternatives, and I think this is what you're, you're asking, the two primary alternatives are home birth and birth center birth. Um, so home birth is, uh, depending on the woman, um, you can either have an assisted home birth or an unassisted home birth. So unassisted home births are just those that a woman chooses not to have any medical assistance at all or not to have any midwife assistance. Uh, those are pretty uncommon, but they do exist. Um, usually women are doing that because they have either religious or other concerns about um providers or they've had traumatic experiences with providers before. So a lot of the women that I've talked to who had unassisted home births were traumatized by previous interactions. And so they just felt it was safer to not have someone um, else around. Now, that doesn't mean that they were completely unassisted. Usually they had their partner or friends or a doula. Um, the much more common form of home birth is birth, home birth with a midwife. Um, and so that's the, the, the other alternative. Really fast. What's the difference between a doula and a midwife? Yeah, good question. So doulas are um, essentially mother's helpers. They're sort of mother's assistants um, during birth specifically. Um, now, one interesting thing, I talk about this in the book, but there's actually so, sort of doulas guide you through the birthing process. They're not meant to, um, they're not trained in nursing or medicine. Um, a lot of midwives have nursing training, whereas doulas typically do not. Uh, the goal of the doula is just to sort of support the mother. So I had a doula with my first two births and um, she helped by providing um, counter pressure on my back. I was having back labor with my first daughter. Uh, she got me ice. She kind of helped when my husband couldn't be around or when he was tired, right? They sort of traded off. Uh, and it's really her job to just make sure that the mother's voice is heard in the process. And, and it's, I think it's particularly important in the hospital context. It may be a little bit less important in the in the um, home birth or birth center 
context. Um, a lot of doulas provide some postpartum care, so they'll come check in on the mom. Uh, this can be really important to preventing or at least uh, identifying postpartum depression. So having someone who comes in and says, how are you feeling? How are things going? Uh, and that can be a really important gatekeeper for um, identifying mental health issues when they're arising. Um, and, and I talk about it in the book, but we're actually seeing a rise in post, um, sorry, uh, death doulas. So um, a similar kind of service offered at the end of life, because both birth and death. And one of the things that I tie together in the book is that they're both really preference sensitive phenomena. So my birth is completely different from other people's births. I had very different preferences about what I wanted to have happen to my body. I know tons of people who love, you know, pain medication and epidurals. Uh, they, they had wonderful experiences during their births. I chose not to use those, but that's an idiosyncratic preference. I don't think anyone should judge anyone else for their pain preferences, uh, during labor and delivery. And the same thing is true at death. People, have lots and lots of different idiosyncratic desires and preferences about how they want to die, where they want to die, the kinds of family and friends that they want to have around. And so a death doula actually just helps people guide, it helps guide you through the process. And death doulas also work really closely with families. Um, so I would say in both cases, a doula is really just meant to try to honor the individual's preferences as far as possible. A midwife is different though, because midwives do have, um, pretty extensive training in how to get a baby out of a body. So that it's a different kind of, of training altogether. That makes sense. And you called it midwifery. So a midwife practices not midwifery, it's midwifery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's spelled midwifery, though. <laughs> so it's confusing. I just, me and language, I read a lot of words and then I'm like, I don't know if this is the right way to pronounce it. Just checking. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you mentioned that a lot of people choose the alternatives when, because they've had a bad experience with the standard. Um, mm-hmm. And all the medicalization would be totally okay if it actually helped women and babies be safe and babies be delivered safely. For instance, I read that the United States has the worst rate of maternal deaths in the developed world. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that medical innovation hasn't made pregnancy and birth safer. It just means that we've reached a point where I think we provide too much medicalized care and it might come at the cost of the safety of mothers and their babies. So mm-hmm. kind of where is that line? Yeah, I think it's really hard. Um, you know, I use my own births as sort of a, a case study in this. I mean, I gave birth in a hospital partially because we didn't have any birth centers in my area. And we haven't really talked much about birth centers, but maybe we can talk about those in just a second. Um, we didn't have any birth centers. And my husband, for a lot of reasons, was not comfortable with a home birth. And I wasn't entirely sure that I was committed to a home birth. And we had a, a nearby hospital that had a, a midwifery practice attached to it. So I said, let's just, you know, let's try this. Um, but my, so my position was, I love medical care. <laughs> I love medical innovations. I love that we live in a world where, you know, so far, uh, my children, you know, have not died of preventable illnesses, right? I mean, like we, we we're living in the best time to be humans in a lot of really important ways when it comes to medical innovation. But we also know, like across the board that we use that medical, those medical innovations too much. So this is true in birth. It's true in, um, uh, geriatrics. It's true at the end of life. We overuse medical tools in a variety of contexts that they're just either inappropriate or actually harmful. 
So when I went into the hospital, I said, you know, I really want, I want these medical tools to be available if they're needed. But what I don't want is to set up the cascade of interventions that really starts the second you walk in the door. And it starts with fetal monitoring, which there's no evidence that, that, um, that really frequent or even, or continuous fetal monitoring assists with fetal outcomes at all. Um, and yet many, many hospitals do it routinely. And it interferes with uh, with the mother's focus. It interferes with her ability to move around. And so lots of just a lot of examples like this. And so when I went in to give birth, I said, you know, I, I want to really create some boundaries. I want to make sure that when the medical tools are used, they're used because it is the most appropriate tool in my specific situation. But a lot of women do not have the ability to have the kind of caregivers that I had. Um, again, I had a physician who was a home birth midwife in her previous career. That's not like that doesn't exist anywhere else. And so I was able mm -hmm. to create boundaries that other women just don't have access to. And, and that's what really concerns me. It also seems relatively costly to do all this stuff. I mean, I can't imagine you're adding extra procedures, extra doctor's visits, all that, and that it doesn't cost extra in addition to being somewhat irrelevant in a lot of cases. Yes. Yeah. So we know that, um, and, and maternity, it's, it's, you know, that the healthcare system is really, really complex. So maternity care is really, really expensive. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of concerns about the way that the costs are passed on to, um, to individuals. Um, we've started moving toward a global, uh, billing system for, for maternity care, which means that you have fewer sort of unexpected bills, which is great. Um, but it also makes it harder to see when those, you know, when those bills are, um, you know, are, uh, sort of unnecessary. Um, I had something like 10 ibuprofen in the hospital for my third, uh, daughter. And we got the itemized bill from the insurance company later, and it was $40 for 10 ibuprofen. <laughs> and we didn't pay that. My insurance company paid that. And that was what the insurance company had actually talked them down to. So there's an enormous amount of waste in the system. At the same time, the maternity care, you know, the, the, a lot of it is endogenous to just the fact that we have spiraling costs in the United States. Um, and, and in fact, hospitals don't make a lot of money on maternity care generally. So you have this really weird paradox where maternity care is very expensive for the families involved and the insurers. Um, your average birth is about, is about $10,000, 10 to, 10 to $15,000, depending on whether you get a C-section or not. Um, and, and yet, uh, most hospitals don't make money on maternity care. And so we actually have maternity care units closing across the United States at the same time that we've regulated alternatives out of existence. So we have huge pockets of the United States that are maternity care deserts, meaning that if you're in labor, it's going to take you over an hour to get to a hospital to give birth. Um, and that's really dangerous. That hurts outcomes um, we know that long distance time is, is um, associated with a lot of negative outcomes for mothers and babies. So there's some really weird paradoxes at work. So I want to get into the way in which regulation has played a part of that. But before I kind of want to talk about C-sections, as I was getting into mm -hmm. all of this, I, I realized that so a third of C-section births aren't needed. And that's just crazy to me. But then I think about my own family and I was born by C-section and that saved my life and it probably saved my mother's life. But then my sister didn't need one, but she got one. And mm -hmm. so 50% of the C-section births in my family were not in my direct family were not needed. Um, so why do you think women agree to C-sections if they don't need them? 
Yeah. So the problem is, of course, that you don't know that you don't need one. Um, birth is really scary. And one of the reasons, or it can be really scary. Um, it, it can be really empowering too. But, but if something goes wrong or something feels wrong, it can, it can be very scary. Um, and so when you're in that moment, you're flooded with hormones. You, all you want is for your baby to be safe. And someone says, Hey, we've got to get this baby out of you. Um, then you, you, you start thinking to yourself, um, yeah, this makes sense, right? So you consent to a procedure because you're not sure what all the variables look like. Um, now, we know that there's a lot of things that contribute to C-section. So um, I was talking to a maternal fetal specialist for the book, and, and he said, you know, the problem with continuous fetal monitoring is that everybody has these non-reassuring blips on the on the fetal monitoring, right? Like every so often, just like you're going to have the fetus is going to move weirdly and you're going to see something that looks off. And if you're, if you're jumpy, if you've been sued before, um, there's actually some research, um, by Neil Shaw out of, um, Boston that finds that the distance from the monitors. So if you're talking long hallways for nurses to get to patients, um, that makes people more risk averse. So they'll say, okay, well, we've got a couple you know, negative things. Let, let's go, let's go take a look. And then, you know, we'll, we'll section her, um, liability concerns. So there's a bunch of different reasons that the fear ramps up really aggressively in the hospital environment. And it doesn't ramp up as, as aggressively in the home environment. Um, now some people are going to say that that, that means that some babies are going to die. And you do in fact have slightly higher rates of fetal death, um, particularly in some States that have more heterogeneous, regulations around, around midwives. Um, but you also have better maternal outcomes in those states. And so there's this real trade-off between unnecessarily cutting women open and, and leading to a variety of other downstream knock-on effects, um, and a slight increase in, in infant mortality. And I'm talking, a, a, it's a pretty slight increase where it, it doesn't make it super common. Um, but I think it just is, there's an atmosphere of fear in the hospital. Um, and, and again, a lot of the providers that I talk to who work in hospitals say that that fear is really what motivates people. Um, it's, it's an environment where any mistake feels like it's a life or death mistake. Any waiting feels fraught. Um, and so the culture of hospitals is constant ac activity and constant movement. And very often that constant activity really works against mother's best interests when they just I mean, really need a little bit more time. Yeah, go ahead. I also, I think about a hospital and when you're fine, when you're healthy, when there's nothing going on, me in my normal state, hospitals aren't scary, but you think about why you're in a hospital. I'm giving birth to a child, to another living human being. First, that's scary as hell, but then <laughs> the hospital setting is just terrifying if you think about it. The amount of movies and TV shows and scary things that have been put out, this culture of like, there's the fear of a hospital, the hospital. But it is, I don't know, it's just, there are so many bad things that have happened at hospitals. But at the same time, hospitals also have immediate solutions. So you're mm -hmm. in a hospital, then you can immediately take action. And so it seems to be this weird thing where it causes so much fear but at the same time, you feed into it because you think, oh, well, I have the solution. We can solve it right here. This like, no matter how big the problem is, we can do something immediately that will fix it. And it might not necessarily be the right way to go. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But doctors, so I think about doctors and C-sections and it seems that 
it's more simple for doctors when they're like, oh, should we have a C-section or not? Because the liability risk, apparently, I mean, you talk about this in your book, is way, way worse for vaginal birth after having a C-section than having a repeat C-section. And my mom admitted she didn't need a second one, but she just agreed to it because, I mean, she couldn't really know, but she agreed to it before she would even have any idea. Mm -hmm. How do the liabilities differ and how does that influence the behavior of doctors? Yeah, so this is a really great example of ways in which the risks to the mothers diverge really sharply from the risks to physicians. So a second C-section is more risky for the mother, but it's uh, less risky for the doctor from the liability perspective, um, because typically the kinds of the kinds of side effects that come from a second C-section are going to happen with the third and fourth pregnancy after that. So that doctor is not around for that. That doctor is not going to be tied to that. Like that's not the liability that that doctor is going to be responsible for. Whereas if, if there is a very rare uterine rupture, which is what people are concerned about. So the fear of um, VBAC, which is vaginal birth after cesarean, is this, this risk of uterine rupture. Um, now, the research is really clear. It's not a big risk. It's actually very rare. Most ruptures are actually what we would call tears. And they're very easily fixed after birth. So they're not, when people think uterine rupture, and just that phrase sounds horrifying and catastrophic. Um, but but the, the vast majority of these very rare events are in fact not ruptures or what we would think of as ruptures at all. They're, they're small tears that can be fixed after, after surgery. Um, there are some people, of course, who are not good candidates for vaginal birth after cesarean, right? If you, if your placenta is in the wrong place, you should not give birth vaginally. If you're, um, if you're carrying multiples, probably you're not a good candidate for, for feedback. Although even that might be, might be too conservative of a recommendation. Um, but it's certainly true that we, we have this weird system where the doctor's in, interests are not aligned with mother's interests when it comes to VBAC. And a lot of this actually can be traced to, um, to a single study in the 1990s that, um, was incorrect, it turned out, but it, it argued that you just have this catastrophic rate, like you're going to have uterine ruptures and, um, and everybody should avoid VBAC from now on. And that really heightened the liability risk. Now, it turns out that part of that, um, part of the reason that we see that heightened rupture was that we were also inducing women at the same time. And so the induction, the chemicals that they were used, using for the inductions were increasing the risk of rupture. So it's it's this like, you know, medicalization compounds on itself in these really complicated ways. And so it becomes really hard to tease out, is it the induction method that's causing the rupture or is it the VBAC itself? And what we figured out over the next, you know, the last 20 or 30 years is that VBAC in most women is actually very safe. But we don't, it sounds we haven't like- aligned to it. Yeah sounds like they didn't isolate their variables like scientists should. <laughs> well, it's hard to do. So this is the other piece of this, right? It's very hard to do research on pregnant women. It's very hard to get that kind of research through IRB boards. It's, it's very hard to get that kind of research cleared. Um, and it's hard to find women who are willing to, to put themselves into studies like that. So Across the board, we have awful, awful data, just a total lack of data on really basic things. You know, should you take ibuprofen during pregnancy? Well, we have like a little bit of evidence on that. You know, I was trying to find out whether I could take my allergy medicine during during birth, or I'm sorry, during pregnancy. And it was like this black box. Like everyone's like, I don't know, 
Like there's no, there's no data, but probably avoid it. And I was like, well, that's not an answer. And of course, Emily Oster has done wonderful work on this. So if anyone's interested, she's, she's just really fantastic at breaking down the actual risk factors for a lot of these things, including things like drinking during pregnancy. So I, I highly suggest people check out her work if um, uh, Expecting Better is her book on pregnancy. Um, but she's an economist who does a really fantastic um, analysis of a lot of these major, just examples of places that we have data or we have bad data. So, I mean, I feel like I have so many questions about this and we could talk about this for hours, but let's move on to regulation and the impact on all these different ways of giving birth and all of that and these deserts, as you mm-hmm. call them. So they're being encouraged to give birth in hospitals in a particular way, but how did we get there? It seems like the trend is more of a product of regulations of home birth, midwifery, alternative birthing, rather than a cultural shift where women wanted to give birth specifically in hospitals. It didn't seem as much a demand thing as a regulation thing, I guess you could say. So what are the the regulations at the state and local level that have led to the disappearance of places like birth centers and incentivized hospital births? Yeah. So I think there's kind of three big regulatory movements, or at least these are the three. I'm I'm sure there are sort of others, but I'm just trying to simplify things. Um, The first is the move to license midwives. And so this is in the sort of early 1900s, um, late 1880s, early 1900s. Um, Physicians are are really concerned. And and you can actually, there's a couple, um, I cite this one in the book, but there's um, an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in like 1912 or something that says, um, you know, obstetrics is never going to evolve as a discipline unless we have the material on which to practice, which is currently being monopolized by midwives. And of course, the material he's talking about is women's bodies, right? So if women are giving birth at home, then men don't have access. Male doctors don't have access. And remember, most women could not, you could not in most states go to medical school as a woman at this time. So it's all male doctors, mostly white doctors. Um, and then you have women who are giving birth with midwives at home and those doctors can't get in there. They can't get in there to see what's going on and they can't practice um, and they can't learn. And so very quickly, the, the state medical associations move to start um, using the power of the state medical associations uh, to prosecute people who are, quote unquote, practicing medicine without a license. And so midwives are one of the first people targeted. There was lots of other people who were, we had a pretty heterogeneous kind of medical community at the time. You had like apothecaries and then you had just cranks and, you know, like snake oil salesmen. Um, but midwives were targeted as one of the primary competitors to, to men when it came to male doctors, when it came to um, midwifery uh, and obstetrics, broadly speaking. So the first move is really state licensing. And so you start seeing this real increase in prosecutions of midwives during this period. Um, and a lot of times um, I cite one case, for example, in Massachusetts, where the midwife who's prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license had, had better safety records than the male physicians that she was being accused by, right? So it was very clearly not a safety issue. It was a competition issue. Um, And so then when licensing kicks up, you really get, you you get a lot of midwives just driven out of practice altogether. Um, This was particularly heartbreaking for the grand or granny midwife tradition in the South, where you had black women who were uh, trained in this apprenticeship tradition 
who would work with very often very poor and very rural populations. And very often they would be the only provider who was willing to work with these populations. But once they were licensed, it was it was almost impossible for them to either meet the standards of licensure um, or get a license at all. So you see the eradication of, of uh, granny midwifery and then the movement of women sort of into hospitals. And then the second big stream that I talk about in the book is, is a federal policy, which is the Hill-Burton Act. And that um, is a 1946 act um, that uh, essentially prioritized building community hospitals all over the United States. And so it pumped huge amounts of federal money into uh, these these small community hospitals to build them. And it was kind of an infrastructure and jobs act. It was meant to kind of get people back to work after the war. But what it did, of course, is it, it really solidified hospitals in the public conscience uh, or con- consciousness as a, as a place to give birth and a place to uh, get treatment. And so that kind of, you have the removal of midwives as the first line of, of sort of attack. And then the, you know, solidification of hospitals as the main providers in that next, um, in that next act. And then Medicare kind of ties the whole thing together in the 1960s. Wow. If you want to learn more about occupational licensing and the effects of those legislations in any and every industry, listen to my episode called Matt Mitchell on con laws and occupational licensing. You talk a lot in your book and you mention the devastating effects of this shift on the black community, which seems glaringly clear when looking at the situation with midwives. But can you expand on those effects? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I think it's really important for people to see all of like the way all of the threads worked together. Right. So you had women, um, you know, black women in, in, in the South, especially, you know, the black population in the, in the early 1900s was really, um, centered in rural areas primarily. And so you have, um, you have a very poor rural population, um, and you have doctors who are mostly white because at this time, remember, most medical schools do not, or they're not desegregated. They, so you're not getting black doctors, um, who are being, um, uh, who are being uh, trained. And in fact, this gets worse with, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, the Flexner report. Um, I want to say it was 1913, but I could be, it could be like 1910, but somewhere around there, um, the Flexner report comes out and um, that's one of the first moves to really standardize medical education in the United States. But one of the like side effects of this and standardization of medical education is not necessarily a bad goal um, because there were a lot of not great physicians running around. Um, but one of the side effects of that is that it, it destroyed um, most of the black medical colleges in the in the nation. And so uh, we went from having a pretty actually like decent black doctor, um, in, you know, decent numbers of black doctors to having very, very, very few once all of these medical schools closed and white medical schools were not accepting black patients. So you have black women giving birth in rural areas. They, you know, white doctors have no incentive to treat them because they don't have a lot of money. Um, And they, you know, there's also concerns, obviously, about sort of working with black populations in general. Um, And so the only buffer, and then keep in mind, of course, that this is during Jim Crow. This is during massive segregation of hospitals that the hospitals that exist. Um, And it's also during the eugenics movement. And so you have... Um, a wave of forcible sterilizations of women, um, both white and black um, and Latina. Um, And so 
poor women in general are sort of under siege. And the black midwife, uh, the way that I've described her in other writings is she's a buffer. She's a kind of really powerful buffer that protected black women's bodies against uh, this, this sort of white institutions of, of hospitals. And so once you destroy black midwives, once you, you license them out of existence, um, then black women really don't have much option other than to go into these hospitals where their bodies are, um, you know, in many cases, just really horrifically abused. They're forcibly sterilized. There's all sorts of really terrible, terrible, um, uh, abuses that go on. Um, the book Medical Apartheid um, by Harriet Washington goes into more detail on this. Uh, but there's just, you know, there's a lot of really good evidence that hospitals were not a great place for black women to be at this at this point in time. And yet we didn't give them any other options. So all of these threads kind of come together where you get overregulation of medical schools that closes black medical colleges. You get overregulation of black midwives for the purpose of eradicating them to to uh, limit competition with white doctors. Um, and then you start getting all these other funnels. In the book, I talk about them as sort of streams, right? Rivers in an ecosystem, um, including things like reimbursement. And so you start opening the floodgates um, when Medicare and Medicaid come along. So Medicare comes along in 1965. And now, um, all of the funding is just flooding into hospitals and any other alternatives are really like washed away. You just don't have any other places for people to land. And so how, women are stuck in that case. Yeah, go ahead. How did Medicaid do that? How, how does the funding differ from a hospital to a birth center or the use of a midwife if it's the same exact, like it's a birth, it just, it's a birth. How is there a difference? Yeah. So in the first place, um, medical providers have traditionally, this changed under um, the Affordable Care Act a little bit, um, but traditionally medical providers. So part of the background here is, um, is the American Medical Association was heavily influential in determining the structure of Medicare. And so they fought for this procedure-based system, this, this um, uh fee for service model, which meant that you get, you get paid as a physician based on how much you do to a patient. And so the problem with that is that the goal of midwifery, for example, is not to do things to patient, uh, you, your client, you wait, right? You watch, you see how things are going and you only intervene if you need to. And so under this new model, midwives wouldn't get paid at all, right? Because they're not doing things. They're not doing procedures. They're not doing surgeries. They're not using pain medication, right? They're, they're not doing any billable services. So that's the first way. The second way, though, is that Medicare is very tightly linked to licensing. You have to be a licensed provider to get Medicare funding. So in a lot of states where you have either traditional or um, direct entry midwives, people who are not nurse midwives, and actually even some states, nurse midwives until very recently, um, they weren't, if, if you're not licensed in that state, you are not eligible for Medicare reimbursement at all. And so once Medicaid came along and was applied, was expanded to about 40% or more of, of pregnant women um, qualify for Medicaid. But what that means is that you get the kind of provider that the state thinks you need. And the kind of provider that the state thinks you need is a physician in a hospital, because that's how the system was structured. So Medicare was created to prioritize physicians and hospitals. It was not made to, to be flexible enough to even think about other providers, people like uh, midwives, people like doulas. 
So even in situations where you have licensed providers who are eligible for Medicare and Medicaid funding, um, or reimbursement rather, they often make significantly less than physicians for the exact same amount of time and the exact same um, set of care. It seems as though they tried to base it off of oh, well, a hospital, it's medical, it's a safer, whatever, even though there really isn't any evidence to back that that's better. And it seems as though a lot of the stuff we're doing is not safe and not very relevant, like monitoring. And that is just so evidently connected to, oh, well, you get paid more if you do more stuff. So then obviously you're going to do more stuff. That's just how it works. Incentives affect behavior. This is this is something that I that is like screaming at me through this. But what do we do? Can we reverse this trend? Is there anything to be done? Um, yeah, I think actually there is. So, so you you talked about con laws um, before, and um, and Matt's fantastic. And we were at a conference recently on on certificate of need laws. Um, And we're fighting those in New York state right now because birth centers, for example, in all of New York state, there's only two birth centers that are open right now. Um, And obviously in a state of millions of women, that's not enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that's because of the certificate of need process. And so one thing we've been doing is trying to push back against this kind of regulation. I mean, so one of the problems we have is that our medical system, and this is true of a lot of overregulated systems generally, our medical system is really not set up to handle small-scale providers or um, what are sometimes called alternative providers, right? They're just not, it's set up for the big guys. And the big guys, they have the billing systems, they have, they understand sort of how to work the billing systems. Um, And so, and the regulations are often aimed at trying to get everyone to look like the big guys. So a lot of the regulations that midwives and doulas are fighting in New York right now are regulations that insist that you treat these low risk birth centers like hospitals or like ambulatory surgical centers, which is just crazy. That's not the model at all. And in fact, that's not the patient population that they treat. So I think you can push back on the state. I I have more hope at the state level. I think the problem of Medicare um, and the sort of perverse incentives that are baked into Medicare and Medicaid uh, is that there's so many interest groups that it's, I, I don't see I think the biggest hope is that there's our incentives align, at least in some direction, for deregulation at the national level, which is to say that everyone is aware of cost right now because costs are out of control. So if we can make the argument, which I think we can, that greater access to midwives, greater access to birth centers, greater access to doulas as a preventive measure, um, those things save cost in the long, in the short term and the long term. And this is particularly true when it comes to death and dying too. But if we if we argue that a lot of these non-medicalized providers can provide serious cost savings, then you're going to get Medicaid and Medicare um, taking a closer look at how to make it easier to use those uh, to use those providers. So we do see um, a couple states have doula like ex, you know pilot programs for doulas being able to be reimbursed with Medicaid. Um, the Affordable Care Act made it so that if an, certified nurse midwives have to be reimbursed, right? So any licensed provider, but particularly certified nurse midwives, um, are reimbursable by, by Medicaid, um, including in the home birth context. So there's been some moves, but they're all cost savings, right? So they're not they're not aimed at the question of whether midwives provide better care. They're just 
this might be cheaper. And that's probably the successful, like that's probably the most successful direction you're going to have to go in, if that makes sense. Thank you so much for all your insight and all of your time. Before we go, I want to ask you one last question. What is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Oh, so there have been so many things. Um, I'll, I'll answer that. I'll sort of slide around that question and, and say that one of the best gifts that being a little bit older, and I still think of myself as very young, so it's actually deeply ironic that I'm sort of thinking of myself as a <laughs> oldster here. But um, one of the one of the most the greatest gifts that I've sort of gained from from a variety of experiences is just more humility. Um, I think you know sometimes, in fact, most of the time, I think people think they know so much more than they actually do. So this is a, a sort of Socratic lesson, but just digging a little bit deeper. And I think this is particularly true in our polarized news environment, but it's also just true about the narratives that you've been given about things. Um, and particularly in the healthcare field, I see this over and over again, where people think that there's a really simple solution. Um, and just having a little bit of humility and, and admitting that maybe you don't know as much as you should about any specific issue. And maybe it's time to dig a little bit deeper um, so I think taking the time to just stop and be willing to admit that you might be wrong is is one of the best gifts that I've that I've been given over the last uh, twenty years or so in academia. That's a great response. Thank you so much for being here for giving all this information, and I hope to have you on again sometime. Thank you. Thank you. I would love it. This was fun. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.